So according to Peter, there will be a delay. It will probably feel very long to us, though it will seem rather short to God. Whatever, at the end of that delay, once God feels as though there has been sufficient time for people to hear and respond, the door will shut, the opportunity will pass, and the end will come with a thud. It was a flood in Noah's day, but it will be a fire in the day that is coming. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and the earth will be cleansed and exposed. Now, who knows what that actually refers to? It almost sounds like a star exploding somewhere and the blast of that explosion washing over the earth, unanticipated, unannounced, and unstoppable. Whatever it is, it will do the job that God intends as thoroughly and extensively as did the flood in Noah's day. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Christian eschatology leads to Christian ethics. What we believe about the end of all things should commend and control how we live and what we prioritize in the time between. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Peter chapter 3. As we've talked about a few times now, the emphasis here in 2 Peter is a little bit different than it was in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, he was warning them about the dangers outside in the world and telling them how to respond to that and how important it was to not over-respond to that. But here in 2 Peter, he's talking to them about the dangers inside the church. We've got these false teachers on the loose inside the congregation. These people, these scoffers, didn't believe that Jesus was coming back. They didn't believe in the final judgment. They didn't believe that holiness was possible in the time between. That was their basic message, and Peter has a very stern warning for them. He, he says that they are headed straight for hell, and woe unto anyone foolish enough to follow along after them. Now, here in chapter 3, he continues on with that theme. Here he's telling his people that these false teachers have either forgotten or are willfully suppressing things that they know to be true, so as to provide cover for their wicked and immoral lifestyles. That's what's really going on here, Peter says. And there is no good reason for anyone to be taken in by their nonsense. We know what the Bible says. We know what was predicted by the prophets, what was said by Jesus, and what is being said even now by his faithful apostles. So Peter is reviewing those things and providing some very useful pastoral counsel for them moving forward. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Here, Peter says that he is reminding them of things they should already know as people who've read the Old Testament and who have been told about the teachings of Jesus. Bible readers ought to know that judgment is often slow in building, like a pot that takes a long time to boil. And in that indeterminate delay, there will always be people saying that God doesn't see, God doesn't care, and God isn't coming. That's the story of Noah's flood in a nutshell, isn't it? God chose a very slow and public way of both preparing judgment and providing a means of salvation. That was intentional on his part. But instead of helping Noah build the ark and instead of embracing the means of God's deliverance, the vast majority of people on the earth at that time scoffed at the prospect of judgment and mocked the very person who was sent by God to provide a means of escape. So it was, Peter says, and so you were told it will be. Jesus said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24, verse 9. So you're going to have an experience very similar, quite analogous to the experience of Noah. You are going to offer the world salvation and the vast majority of people who hear you are going to be angry at you. They're going to be annoyed with you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to do everything they can to get rid of you. Jesus said that. And Jesus said that false teachers would worm their way into the church, sent by Satan to undermine and destroy it. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15. So nothing that is happening here either in here or out there in the world. Nothing that is happening should be surprising to anyone who knows their Bible or to anyone who has been paying attention to the things that Jesus said. Of course there are scoffers. Of course there are doubters. Of course there are mockers. There always have been, there always will be. That's what goes on during the long delay. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is quoting here from Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, verse 4, Moses says to God, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is eternal. He doesn't look at time the way we do. We look at things in a straightforward, linear way. That's the only way we can look at things. So imagine a really tall tree. We experience that like a tree that has been cut down. We put our eye on the stump at the point of the cut, and we look down that fallen tree, inch by progressive inch, way off to the tip of the tree at the very distant edge of our gaze. That's how we experience time, in a line, one moment after the other. So a thousand years to us looks like forever. But God looks at the tree as if it were standing up. The top is no further away from him than the bottom. He sees it all at a glance. A thousand years to him is like a day, like yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three hours. So the point here is... 
that some things that seem really long to us actually seem really short to God. And whatever delay there is, long or short, however you want to look at it, has nothing to do with any softening on God's part or any forgetfulness on God's part. The delay isn't about that. The delay is about salvation. God is being patient. He wants to provide an opportunity for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond. But just like in the days of Noah, this delay will not last forever. Eventually, just like in that story, God himself will shut the door. Peter begins to talk about that in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So according to Peter, there will be a delay. It will probably feel very long to us, though it will seem rather short to God. Whatever, at the end of that delay, once God feels as though there has been sufficient time for people to hear and respond, the door will shut, the opportunity will pass, and the end will come with a thud. It was a flood in Noah's day, but it will be a fire in the day that is coming. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and the earth will be cleansed and exposed. Now, who knows what that actually refers to? It almost sounds like a star exploding somewhere and the blast of that explosion washing over the earth, unanticipated, unannounced, and unstoppable. Whatever it is, it will do the job that God intends as thoroughly and extensively as did the flood in Noah's day. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, in the Bible, ethics are generally drawn from eschatology. Eschatology has to do with the end. That's what the word literally means. So we talk about the end. We talk about where things are going. And then we extrapolate back from that some reasonable understanding of what it is that we ought to be doing now, that's, that's what the word ethics refers to. So eschatology leads to ethics, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? That indeed is the question of the hour. The human race is hurtling towards final judgment. The only reason for the delay is because the task of announcing the work of redemption accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ actually takes a fair bit of time. As Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's Matthew 24, 14. Okay, well, that's not something we can do in a weekend. We're going to need to learn a couple of thousand languages. We're going to need to disciple a couple of billion people. So this is going to take some time, and only the Lord will decide when it's done. But when it's done... When the message has gone out and the opportunity of deliverance has been given and responded to, then the end will come. That's eschatology. Now, how then should we be living as God's people in the time between? That's the question. And Peter answers it. He says we should be living lives of holiness and godliness, 
We should be waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. All that makes a ton of sense, given what Peter has just said about the future. Holiness certainly makes sense. You don't want to be high on pot and cheating on your wife when Jesus comes. That, that just makes a ton of sense to me. So we ought to be working on our holiness, and we ought to be living righteously. These are overlapping concerns, obviously, but putting them together, we might say that in light of all that is coming, we need to move away from some stuff, and we need to move towards some stuff, and specifically towards some people. Righteousness has to do with living with and toward others as we are taught to do in the law and through the person and example of Jesus Christ. So put away sin and start loving and serving people the way Jesus told you to do. Peter also says we should be hastening the day of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Most scholars agree that at least two things are in view here. Michael Green, for example, says evangelism is one way in which we can be said to hasten the coming of the Lord, close quote. And that makes sense, obviously, as we already talked about. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So mission and evangelism, in some mysterious way, hasten the day of the Lord. So we should get on with that, and we should be active and fervent in prayer. I think it'd be fair to say that prayer hastens the day of the Lord. After all, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Why did he want us to do that if it wasn't going to be effective? And according to the book of Revelation, it is effective. Revelation 5.8 says, and when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Close quote. In the book of Revelation, the climactic movements of God to save and to judge are poured out on the earth in response to the prayers of God's people. So every time you pray, thy kingdom come, you are hastening the day of the Lord. You're putting a little prayer up there in the bowl that when it's full will actually be poured out in saving and judging action. That hastens the the day of the Lord. That stirs the pot. That makes things happen. And that's what Peter says. That's the sort of stuff that Peter says we should be doing. So given all that is coming, given what we know now about how things will end, we ought to be growing in holiness, increasing in righteousness, active in evangelism, and fervent in prayer. All that makes a ton of sense as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second because I want to make sure that we've captured that. You say there in the program audio, given all that's coming, given what we know now about how things will end, we ought to be growing in holiness, increasing in righteousness, active in evangelism, and fervent in prayer. Now, all of that makes sense to me. But I want to press in on one thing in particular in that list. You mentioned a few times now that in some sense, being active in evangelism can hasten the day of the Lord. Is that true? Can we make Jesus come sooner by being more committed to the cause of world mission? Well, I'm not sure that that would be the best way to put it, but there is definitely a connection between the preaching of the gospel to all nations and the coming of the end. Jesus makes that connection in Matthew 24, 14. So if Jesus was saying it, then then I want to be believing it. The Bible does seem to suggest that the main reason for the delay relates to the extension of the offer of salvation. In fact, in the very next paragraph we're going to be looking at in 2 Peter, Peter himself makes that connection. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So Peter says, rather than being upset or discouraged by the delay, consider it as an expression of God's patience and mercy. This delay will be, has been, salvation for an awful lot of people. So that's what it's about. That's what the apostles are, are, are saying it's about. And, and then Peter says here, that's exactly what you heard the apostle Paul talking about. So all the apostles seem to be on the same page here. The reason for the delay relates in some way to the extension of salvation to all the nations. So if that's true, and, and Jesus and all the apostles are saying it's true, then it makes sense for us to be urgently about that task during the long delay, however long that ends up being. All right, I'm convinced. <laughs> thinking carefully about the end really does sharpen our thinking about what sorts of behaviors and activities we should be prioritizing now. Let's jump back into the text at verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Those are the closing words of Second Peter. And most scholars believe the final written words that we have from the Apostle Peter. If church history is correct, then Peter wrote these words from prison, perhaps as an accompanying cover letter for the Gospel of Mark, shortly before he was executed by crucifixion. Church history suggests that Peter was crucified upside down, shortly after writing this epistle. So these are his last words to his beloved people. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for all these things, since you live in the time between, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Work on your holiness, go about the business you were assigned, and be at peace. Just like you wouldn't want to be in the strip club when Jesus comes back, well, neither would you want to be in a Twitter war. Sexual immorality, quarreling, slander, fighting, these are things you want to move away from in advance of the coming of the King. Use this time to spread the message of salvation far and wide, and stay away from people who distort and mishandle the scriptures. Peter here refers to the letters of Paul which historians suggest may have been indirectly the source of the problem that Peter is addressing here. People were always distorting the message of grace as preached by the Apostle Paul. He did say things in a very jarring and pointed way. He would say, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8-9. So it's very easy to imagine how some smart aleck might come along and say, well then, since we're saved by faith and not by works, then why do any works at all? Why not just live for pleasure and do whatever comes easiest and trust in the grace and mercy of God? And we know, for example, that people were saying that. 
because Paul frequently pushed back on that. He assumed that charge. He must have known about it. So he would say, as he did, for example, in Romans 6, 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul never actually said that grace made works or obedience irrelevant. He never said that. He said the opposite of that. He said, for example, in Romans 3.31, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul, Paul would say that it's only saved people with new hearts and filled with the Holy Spirit that are actually able to live before God and with one another as we were created and intended to do. So this was obviously hard for people to keep straight in their minds in the first century, as indeed it still is today. But here in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, Peter is trying to preserve the correct interpretation of the letters of Paul in his churches. He actually refers to them as scripture. It's amazing. Thomas Schreiner says here, Peter referred to Paul then to reclaim him and to explain that Paul was not on the side of the opponents, close quote. All the apostles are on the same page. They're all saying the same thing. The law doesn't save us. Grace saves us. But the law is helpful because it teaches us and guides us and points us in the direction of love for God and neighbor. So there's no argument for libertinism or antinomianism anywhere in all the scriptures. That's a distraction and a deception of the enemy. So don't have anything to do with that. You just continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Christian life is like riding a bicycle, Peter says. If you aren't moving forward, then you are falling down. It's just that simple. Therefore, the best thing you can do to protect yourself from threats on the outside and, and from subversive influences on the inside is to grow. Strong things are going to survive the winds and the waves that are coming. Weak things, spindly things, shallow things are going to be washed away. They won't be able to withstand the pressures that are beginning to come upon us from the outside, and they won't be able to discern and identify the insidious errors and deceptions that are constantly being birthed on the inside. So grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn away from error and filth and nonsense and attend to the ordinary means. If you do that, God will build you up and you will put down roots and you will stand your ground no matter the challenges, tribulations, persecutions, seductions, and deceptions that lie ahead. He will hold you fast. He will open your mouth and the gospel of Jesus Christ will be declared to all the nations, and then the end will come. And we will be with him and with one another in the new heavens and the new earth world without end forever. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, as we wrap things up here with Second Peter, I thought it might be useful to direct our listeners to some other material that connects a little bit with what we've been talking about in the last two episodes— you released a special excursus episode over at Into the Word a little while ago called The Great Apostasy. Tell us a little bit about that, because what you said there overlaps considerably with what we've been talking about here. Well, as we talked about earlier in the program, the apostles obviously got their eschatology from Jesus, which makes sense. So a ton of the things said by John and Peter and Paul 
do seem to trace back to things that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Which is Matthew 24 and 25, correct? Right. So in that excursus episode, I focused in on this event that Jesus talked about in the discourse that is sometimes called the Great Apostasy or the Rebellion. Jesus and the disciples seem to have in mind a couple of trigger events that would happen just prior to his eventual return. And so I wanted to drill down on that. And that's what the word excursus means. It's a weird word. I should probably stop using it. But it literally means to (laughs) drill down deeper on a topic of interest. So where would our listeners find that if they're interested? Well, all of our content can be found over on the End of the Word website. So that's www.endoftheword.ca. But the easiest way to manage all of this content uh, would be to get the End of the Word app, as you remind people at the end of every program. Regardless of where you find it, look for the title, The Great Apostasy. That's that's what you want to uh, type into your search bar or on the app. Just click on the Topical Episodes tab and then Excursus uh, and then The Great Apostasy. All right. Wow, we've come to the end of Second Peter, so I assume you've got some plans for where we're going next week? Yes, I have big plans. All right. I thought we'd go back into the Old Testament and start working our way through the book of Exodus. That makes sense. I mean, we did Genesis a little while back, so it would make sense to move from there to Exodus. Yeah, I thought so. And the book of Exodus will give us all kinds of interesting opportunities to talk about things like redemption, law, leadership, idolatry, justice, and the kingdom of God. That's quite a list. And it sounds great. I can't wait. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download that Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 